Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 73rd episode, I'll be talking to Megan Bob, co-host of the Smash Fiction podcast and teacher of humans, about the secret of Roan Inish. Along the way, we take a lengthy detour into good things in wrestling. We delve into the funniest Carol Burnett moment, as deemed by the good people of Reader's Digest, and discuss the dangers of going full boil. Oh, and the little fact that the math of you is now a scholarly work. Go figure. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on the math of you. We join this conversation already in progress. those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? Well, I forgot the first part of the question already. <laughs> That's how overwhelmed I was by actually hearing the words beautiful and unique snowflake in my own ears in a non-podcast listening situation. It does happen. I've had now a few people tell me that it's like I was prepared for that question and it just completely deserts you. Oh no, I have a list, but I still was like, wait, what? I didn't even hear the first part. So who are you then? Oh, who am I? Oh, well person what makes a podcast smash fiction and a person what teaches humans in a community college and that's those are the things a person named megan bob (laughs) oh should i is this where i'm supposed to plug smash fiction well i think smash fiction has now been plugged so many times on this podcast if you don't know what it is i don't have you not been listening to the episodes (laughs) how have you not how do you not know between Miles Schneiderman, between the infestation of Mulcairns. Yeah, you do have a real Mulcairn problem. You got to spray for those. Yeah, we put out the cider traps and it catches some of them, but the rest just kind of get away because the hole in the plastic isn't big enough. This is a real oh, life example because yeah. we recently got rid of a fruit fly infestation in our house, which was not fun. Although I should say, Mulcairns, you are all much, much cuter and lovelier than fruit flies. Correct. And you don't just turn up when you buy a mango from like a guy on the side of the road. Some of them might. You never know. Mango's pretty great. <laughs> Miles, you're also much cuter than a fruit fly, but I do not know your feelings about mangoes. I'm just picturing like cutting up a mango and then just Claire pops up over your shoulder and it's like, want to talk about ludonarrative dissonance? (laughs) That's probably what happens. (laughs) So yes, if you haven't already, go and listen to Smash Fiction. Megan Bob is often the arbiter on these discussions. Her rulings are swift and terrible and almost always disagreed with by me. Yep, I frequently disagree with myself. I am not (laughs) cut out to be a judge person. I'm not really cut out for a lot of the things that Smash Fiction does, and it is a constant source of bafflement to me as to how I got asked to be on it. Well, you also spend the majority of your recording time in the punishment closet. Not anymore, though, now. I'm no longer in the punishment closet. I'm now in what is kind of an office. The punishment office? Because Dan and Kit got me a void box to... Yeah, well, I mean, it is where I do grading, and nobody likes to grade. Everyone likes to just hang out and look at what their students do, but no one wants to assign a grade. (laughs) You're like, can I just give it five flowers out of several? (laughs) Well, speaking of grading, let's talk a little bit about your teaching of humans. Because in a very, like, I don't want to say vain, I don't want to say self-centered way. Ah, no, lean into all of the things. Yeah, I'm going to do it. Megan, Bob, you use me in your classes? I do. I do use you in my classes. So explain to the listeners what you told me about how the math of you is now an assignment and like scholarly work now. It is. I mean, I still need to put together a presentation and take it to the pop culture conference uh, next year. It's the regional pop culture conference because, I mean, I don't have the money. My department does not have the money to send me to the national one. Wait, wait, we're, we're going to regionals? I think so. I think so. I'm going to, you know what, I'm going to put it in my academic goals or whatever. So that way I can go get some cred for doing the thing. But I love the idea of something that asks you to pick three things about yourself, which is tends to be about how many, obviously a lot more comes up in 
the math of you. But, you know, in the episode titles, it's always three things. So I asked my students to do that. And I did it kind of on a whim. I actually was at a loose end and went, you know what? Frick this. I'm just going to have them write about three things. And some of the things I got, I was so fascinated by. And I went, oh, I want to know this about everybody. (laughs) So kind of formalized it into their first paper for me. And I really like it because it involves basically no outside research. So I just get to see their raw writing ability. And I also get to see them write about stuff that they themselves felt was important enough to talk about. It's also kind of this weird thing where sometimes it really turns into a confessional. Oh, wow. And I never, I'm always so happy to see it because obviously it means that they needed to talk about it. But it is like, oh, man, did you know you were going to do this? And sometimes, because I also have them do a self-reflection afterwards to say, like, you know, how did I feel this first essay went? What do I feel like I want to work on? What do I feel like I really nailed? All those things. And sometimes they just talk about, these are things I didn't remember about myself. And these are things from childhood that I had not thought about in years. And so it ends up being this sort of weird stirring up of stuff. But it's always really interesting. It's one of those things that I've noticed from doing this show as well, where a lot of times the topic that someone will bring to the show will not be the most interesting thing that comes up on that show. Oh, yeah. You'll get somebody who, like, even going way back to, like, episode 7, and ye gods, we're on, like, this week will be episode 72. <laughs> going back to episode 7, I always bring it up. Craig Getting, who is a, like, a director, and he works in theater in Philadelphia and a teacher. We just talked. Like, that was one of the first episodes where there was no topic. We just, like, got on and talked. And by the end of it, because I'm a big wrestling fan and he knew that, he mentioned doing was essentially an EFED, a role-playing wrestling online forum where you had to write storylines. And he admitted at the end that he had literally never told this to anyone. And it was nowhere near the topic that we had been talking about for most of the episode where it was mostly about like how good teachers can affect your life or reimagining things like Beckett in a modern situation. And then got to that and it was just like, wow, we're, this is amazing. Like watching this thing play out in real time where neither of us knew where it was going. Yeah, it's good. And it's one of those things where, like you said, if it becomes a confessional, it, I think what I like about it is even in the preparation for a guest coming on, you see a lot of introspection where someone would say, oh, I thought I wanted to talk about this, but the more I examined it, I realized it was more informed by this other thing, and this other thing has the real meat of it. And so it's like, it's something I was saying to Al Collins the other day. They were talking about how sometimes they wanted to read or watch or listen to something and not talk about it online, and how that was a feeling they wanted to develop. And my view on that is I don't want to talk about something online unless I had very strong feelings one way or the other about it. That's my rule. That totally makes sense. Yeah, I'm never going to step onto Twitter and be like, hey, I saw this thing and I wasn't really impressed. Because like, what are you adding to the conversation with that? It's either this thing is amazing, I desperately want to talk to people about it, or this thing was awful, ugh, please someone come and commiserate with me. Or in the Mm -hmm. case of a couple of days ago, hey, Nick Roach, when you were writing Sins of the Wreckers, you put references to Beast Wars 2 and Beast Wars Neo, the Japan-only Beast Wars sequel that screwed with all the characters and had things like a unicorn and a rabbit and a penguin, including like a toy-only playset called Orkanok that you turned into a blue whale for your story. And I'm just like, God damn it, this reference is just for me. It's gotta be. I don't know what Beast Wars is, but I do like unicorns. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, I'm actually interested. Now, with your students, again, I'm not asking you to share actual information, but... Oh, that's okay. Did you have anyone come up afterwards and be like, this was something I had not thought about before. This has changed how I view something? Or has it gone that far? Or is it still in the Um, early stages? That may have been very grandiose of me to ask. They tend to be really shy. Oh, really? So it very... Yeah, so community college, especially, I would say, the United States and maybe especially where I live, some of them might come from really traditional, normal educational backgrounds. Some of them might have been out of school for a while. And then some of them might be here, but they might have had horrible other school experiences. Mm -hmm. So they don't tend to be very trusting or open off the bat. It can take a really long time for them to feel like they even want to talk to me. Okay. So they, I get more out of their writing than I tend to. I do have like face-to-face conferences with each of them. And so sometimes they will say something at that point. But because it's about also developing their writing, I really try to not control the conversation very much other than going, you seem to be talking about this more than anything else. Do you think you want to focus on this instead? Uh And then they go, yeah, yeah, I think I do. Oh, that's nice. 
Oh man, some of the things they've. I ah, I wish it wasn't like some sort of confidentiality thing, which I mean to some extent it is because legal stuff. But they really cover a lot of cultural and family experiences. That some of them, I always encourage them to go pop culture because I'm interested in that. But a lot of times they'll just go, no, I really need to talk about this one cultural thing that is so important to me, or this one family experience is really important to me. And I'm like, all right, I'm here for that. That's so cool. And it was something that I talked to Melissa Bright about. Hi, Melissa. She talked about how, especially, well, for her, it was through books, but through media in general, I think people underestimate the power it has to introduce us to things that are other from us and not in any kind of bad othering kind of way. Just this is an experience that is not yours. Yes. That you get to visit for a little while. And I mean, the joke that I've made, it, it was not even a joke. It's a real situation is that my dad doesn't drink. He's going to be turning 69 this year. Nice. And and he's never taken a drink in his life. Because when he was eight, he snuck into the theater to see Days of Wine and Roses. It's about two alcoholics who were really nasty to each other in, like, the death throes of their marriage. And that affected him so intensely. And admittedly, there is a large amount of alcoholism in, I'm not even going to say working class, in some poverty class aspects of, you know, Hull, Quebec, which is where he grew up. But the idea of seeing that piece of media... And it affecting him so badly that it literally affected him for the next, you know, 60-odd years of his life. It's the idea of every comic potentially being someone's first comic. And what is that going to tell you about the subject that it has? Uh, Good stuff, right? It is. (laughs) I do want to answer the beautiful and unique snowflake thing because I did make a list. So I feel like if I didn't do this, then what have I even made this list for? All right, hang on. I'll give you another feed. I'll be like... Okay, thank you. All right. I'm preparing my soul. All right. Megan Bob? Why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? Okay, so of the list, I came up with three things that make me a beautiful and unique snowflake. We can debate beauty, but certainly unique snowflake. Hit me. Okay, for seven years of my life, I only ate tuna fish sandwiches for lunch. That's all I ate for seven years. For a large part of my very young childhood into my I'd say about 12 years old so somewhere between the ages of like 8 and 12 my absolute favorite author was a self-help author okay and then I just found it and I was like I didn't realize that's what kind of book it was I was just like oh this is for me it's great and that's what I read and I like even asked for it for Christmas and stuff and then that I completely forgot until very very late on in my list making process that I am a person who goes by both Megan and Bob and Megan Bob and I only know one other person who has a combination quote-unquote male-female name and they are a famous genderqueer academic cool so okay I'm gonna parse this kind of piece by piece Uh, yes tuna fish huh yep don't know why couldn't tell you I still do like it But I don't know. I had really strong feelings about food, I guess, as a kid. And I don't know if I would describe myself as the super pickiest eater. I think I just really liked stability. And so it was always a tuna fish sandwich. And then I would get Cool Ranch Doritos. And then I would put them in the sandwich. Oh, wow. Smush the sandwich down. (laughs) And then eat the sandwich with those Cool Ranch Doritos in it. Because obviously, crunchy, crunchy sandwich. Sure. The potato chips in the sandwich thing is something that will come up repeatedly. And just every time I hear it, I'm always a little bit shocked. But then you think about it and you go, no, no, it makes sense. Have you tried it? I have, yes. And also, it has become a vogue where if you're, you know, a bar or like a burger place in Sydney and you want to have like a Mexican burger on your menu, they will put Doritos under the patty. What? Yep. That's, they don't understand what those words mean then i guess that's very strange yeah. okay so yeah it's like you'll get it and as you bite into the patty you'll get that extra crunch and like nacho cheese blast underneath oh that okay <laughs> i don't know how i feel about that as a concept <laughs> in a burger or also the idea that that's in any way mexican yeah right <laughs> well, oh, okay. this is australians interpreting american burgers yeah. what american burgers would think as a mexican burger so well, and I kind of, I can roll with that. Because, I mean, I know Australia, as far as, like, any kind of ethnic cuisine at all, it's going to be some stripe of Asian cuisine. Yeah. That would be something you guys excel at. So I'm sure yeah. you have really great Malaysian and Indonesian food. And a massive population of Thai food restaurants. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I've been told by people who have traveled that Sydney Thai food is unlike any other Thai food in the world. Mm. There's a th- actually, I'm sorry, I've been watching a lot of Anthony Bourdain No Reservations because it is great to have on while attempting to rock a fractious child to sleep. And Oh, yeah. 
And he's got that rumbly voice. It's kind of soothing. Plus, every time you look up, there's something delicious on screen. This is true. Yeah. Australian food culture is fantastic because we had a massive wave of Greek and Italian migrants. And so our coffee's really good. And (laughs) so, yeah, it's a great kind of melting pot. And so, yeah, recently, the most recent wave has been these American style burger places. It was something I referred to as the American barbecue renaissance in inner West Sydney. (laughs) Good luck, Sydney. I'm sure you could do it. But talking about eating the same food forever and ever, I mean, I was a picky eater. I had a lot of food aversions, mostly the textures. I did, I really didn't like things with no texture, like yeah. avocado or mashed potatoes, If especially because my mom would make the instant mashed potatoes. Yeah, I was a mashed potato hater as a kid, too. Yeah, I like them now because I got introduced to, like, a rough mash, like, with, oh, like, yeah. some, like, maybe, like, a little bit of cabbage or a little bit of, like, watercress through it. Yeah, chunky. That's the one with the skin still on. Or cold cannon, like, with the kale mm. mixed in. Yeah, see, I go, I go with champ, so it's just like... Mm, oh, uh, yeah, it's, ah, Northern Irish, are you? There you go. No, I'm not, but the stuff that convinced me to like mashed potatoes is. That stuff's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, my aversions were to texture, and so what I would often eat for lunch was a peanut butter sandwich, and it would normally be peanut butter and jam, and occasionally would be peanut butter and sugar. <laughs> oh, you know what? No, I shouldn't laugh. I, too, have had those sandwiches. Yeah, and the thing is, when you put a peanut butter and sugar sandwich into your bag with, like, your math book and stuff, it gets squished into this sort of non-Newtonian superfood. Yeah, and yet really delicious still. Yeah, because it, like, it compresses the white bread and the peanut butter into this sort of, like, glue thing. It really does. It's, and it's, it's good. It's its own new alchemical thing. There was also that year where I told my dad I needed $2.50 for lunch, and I would always take it to the canteen and buy two packets of off-brand Doritos, not actual, it was, wasn't even like taquitos or anything like that. It was just some Canadian brand of like nacho corn chips and two little cartons of chocolate milk. And that was my lunch. Oh my God. And I didn't tell anyone and it never occurred to me this might have not been the healthiest option. Did you get scurvy? Like what the <laughs> hell? How are your, how are your gums, Lucas? <laughs> They're, well, frankly, my teeth and my gums are always, have always been a mess, but that's a long story. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. But no, this it w- cannot be directly attributed it was not to directly. this period was- of non-nutrient life. <laughs> I could have basically eaten the styrofoam that came with my stereo and gotten as much nutritional value from it. I mean, theoretically, you were getting some calcium and vitamin D. That is about all you were getting. But, you know, I, that that's not nothing. I was getting some, some niacin. I've read the side of a milk carton. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. That's another thing that, let me adjust my old man hat, kids today don't understand anymore, is that you would just read whatever was put in front of you because you had nothing else to look at, be it a cereal box, a milk carton. I was thinking that. A shampoo bottle in the bathroom. Oh, my God. The times I read shampoo bottles. I was actually, (laughs) as I was getting ready to come in here and I was like making my tea and everything, I said, man, I should have just told Lucas I really wanted to talk about shampoo bottles. (laughs) I've read some fucking great shampoo bottles. And it was, you know what I think it is? And the thing is, this may not be the case for actual behavior, but my view on it was that when you're old enough to be reading on the regular, it's like reading is important. Reading is a good thing to do. And then, so your eye just seeks out text and looks for it. And when it gets there, it locks on and it starts reading before almost you know what you're doing. Oh, yeah. It's like a superpower that you didn't know you had any, and so you just do it all the time. Yeah, and it's just like, I talked about at one point, like I had my first ever iPod. It was a little green metal iPod mini, and it oh. had, like, you could add text files to it. Oh, what? And what I would do is I would go to the Wheel of Time FAQ, where they had all the fan theories, oh, uh, and I would just, like, copy entire articles as much as would fit into, like, a text file. I think it was something like 700 lines or something, and I would put them onto my iPod mini and scroll through them with the little click wheel as I would eat my lunch working out of borders in Sydney's Bondi Junction. Wow. That's dedication. That's how desperate for information I was. So I was real happy when like, you know, e-readers and uh, the Kindle app came along. All right. So we have gone way off course. And what is it with smash fiction people and tangents? My God. I'm so sorry. Yeah, we're just tangenty folks. (laughs) I didn't even get to make my Lilo and Stitch joke about the tuna fish sandwich. Uh, Being an abomination. You may edit it in later. (laughs) No, that would be cheating. All right, Bob. So let's start from the basics. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Las Cruces, America. That's what my dad always called it. But Las Cruces, New Mexico. Not because my dad was patriotic. He was just doing that as a way of contextualizing the fact that we lived essentially nowhere. (laughs) It's like how when you announce a wrestler, it's always from Montreal, Canada. Yes, exactly. Like small town USA, that kind of thing. 
So yeah, I grew up uh, really close to the border of Mexico, close to the border of Texas, tri-regional area. And it is where I have lived the vast majority of my life. The only other place I have ever lived is Ireland. Yeah, I wanted to ask that because your Skype location is in fact Ireland and it terrified me because I was worried that I had got the time difference wrong. Oh, what? Is it? That's weird. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, I moved there first to live with my now husband and see if this relationship had legs. And that's a very bold move on our part. Like, ah, well, we'll just move in together in a country that one of us is not from and see how that works out. (laughs) Turns out okay. (laughs) Ten years later. I can't believe it's been 10 years. This piece of pottery held up when I held it near a candle. What if I just kick it into the kiln? I'm sure it'll be fine. Yeah, exactly. I, and But that's the thing is like a long distance relationship that's that long distance. It eats up so much of your life that you have to know because you're going, well, am I going to keep trying to do time difference math to make this work for the rest of my life? Or is one of us going to move to a different country? So I just went and lived with him for six months. Then we went back to doing the long distance thing. And then I actually went over there to do my master's. Oh, wow. Because I was like free room and board. I mean, by free room and board, I meant he was paying for room and board. (laughs) And I was like there hanging out, reading a book. I think that comparison is part of adulthood, you know, where you would refer to something as free when you were younger. And now you can do the math and go, well, it's free to me. Someone else is paying. Oh, 1,000% somebody else was paying. It's like when you when you go to get glasses and your health insurance pays for all of it. And you're like, I got a free pair of glasses. It's like, no, I got a $283 pair of glasses that I've paid for in increments over the last year. <laughs> right? Yeah. You're like, oh, that's right. There was that whole thing where I do have to pay my insurance, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's why I was like, I also, well, I did live in Northern Ireland for a year doing study abroad. Mm-hmm. So I guess I also lived in Northern Ireland. I lived right on the coast. I was in Coleraine. So as an American living in Ireland and Northern Ireland, did you bump into any kind of, how shall I say? That's okay. Say it brutally. It's fine. <laughs> Did you? My father-in-law's Irish. I could take it. All right. Did you get a kick in because you were American? You know, not as much as I really probably should have. These were the Bush years. Uh They were sort of like, that's weird, but largely indifferent. I think they thought that I was weird behaviorally. (laughs) They're not a huggy people. Physical affection is, I I know, if any Irish person comes out of the woodwork to say, no, yes, we are, I'm going to go, liar, absolutely (laughs) not. I don't know, maybe millennial Irish people are, maybe. I was around a bunch of Gen Xers, and even though I myself am a millennial, not huggy people. (laughs) Also, the idea of openly discussing an issue, (laughs) abhorrent, and the idea of like talking about a feeling if you're not maybe a little bit drunk or if it's very you're very very tired (laughs) again not a thing that they are into so the idea of this person who i I mean like my parents i came from a very very talky household of like well let's talk through this thing as evidenced by my i grew up with self-help books (laughs) that they were no one in ireland or northern ireland was prepared for that experience not in the least I was going to say the ice crystal before the blowtorch that is Megan yeah. talking about her feelings. The Americanness of me allowed me to kind of blow through their stuff about it and just go, well, I know you're obviously displeased by this situation, but it's happening now. So there's that. <laughs> you just got to deal with it. I know. Like, well, I've arrived and here are some feelings. Let's talk about them. And they're sort of trying to edge away. Where are you going? Come back. So I'm getting this image of you as someone who feels things deeply and tells people about how you feel things deeply. But the self-help reading kid that you were, what sort of kid was that apart from one who read self-help or shampoo bottles? Deeply frustrated, I think. The adult world was really represented to me as having some answers. I I really did respect adult authority a lot. But going with that meant that I bought into the idea that, well, really, I assigned adults the responsibility. Like, oh, okay, well, you're going to control what I can and can't do. Fine. So that must mean you have all answers all the time, right? <laughs> and I, I just was like, all right, hook, line, and sinker. So you're on the hook for this. Tell me why everything is the way it is. And I had so many questions all the time and wanted to know everything. And other children were a source of frustration to me as a child. <laughs> Because they couldn't give me any answers. They were no help in grappling with the universe. It's like, what are you going to do? You know the same thing as me. You're an idiot. (laughs) So I was hounding adults all the time to find answers. 
And I just, I don't know. I was a kid who really wanted to understand and just think about everything. But I was also a kid who's like, I had the most enriched and so many opportunities given to me to just explore the world. My parents really made a big effort to, if I ever wanted any book, they would buy it for me, no question asked, every time. So I had a life that was just a deluge of books. They were also the same pretty much with art supplies because I really loved doing art. So I, at one point, actually had, like, my parents set aside a room in the house and they were like, well, Megan has enough art stuff. We'll just put all the art stuff in one room and Megan basically has a studio now. I was about to say, this is Megan's studio. Yeah, pretty much. It just seems so logical to them, I guess, that they're like, there's just enough stuff. We're just going to put it all in here and that's what it is. At a certain point, a storage room with enough open boxes becomes like a library or a studio. Yeah, that's the kind of life that I had in terms of enrichment. My parents would take us out of school to go see theater that was touring in town and Mm -hmm. all kinds of stuff like that. They just really were going, here, go experience the world. We want you to see stuff. And both my parents were sciencey folk, so they were also into us going out and poking a bug or whatever. (laughs) which is not my thing, but I definitely knew a lot about lizards and about more about scorpions, I think, than I was comfortable knowing. <laughs> so that's, you mentioned you're not a bug person. And while scorpions are arachnids, they do fall into that category, especially when you were a kid. Oh, yeah. So was that more educating to avoid, especially, God, if you're in Arizona? Oh, no, New Mexico. All New Mexico, shit. Though they are in all the region. No, 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 it's okay. <laughs> Sort of. I mean, there's nothing in the way that they look that would ever make you go, I'm going to touch it. They're they're literally built to tell you, don't fucking touch me. Oh, yeah. Everything about them and about centipedes says, don't come near me. Although I have none of that with any lizard or snake. I will absolutely go pick up, unless it's a rattlesnake, because they have that built-in warning. And also... They have that very distinctive head shape and also their scales have like a rougher pattern. They're very recognizable to me, so I would not go pick one up, but pretty much anything else. Like I've definitely caught horny toads before and caught little uh, wait, wait, gray checkered wait. whip tails and stuff. Horn lizards also have everything about them that says, don't pick me up. Um, <laughs> They shoot blood out of their eyes, Bob. They do a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> But not a lot. That's just, I'm sure how they say that they're totally cool with this. No, Kit's going to kill me later. (laughs) They're really interesting because if you, you know, like most animals, once they're on their back, they're too terrified to do anything. But they have really soft tummies. They're like weirdly sort of gentle, squishy things. Mm -hmm. But their backs are, it's not pointy like you would think anything that was alive would be pointy. It's the pointiness of a dried spiny plant. And it's fascinating. But they're also, I really like, I really like horny toads. They're kind of darling and they're just like to chill. (laughs) I have a lot of time for reptiles. There is a current wrestler named Asuka who is amazing and wonderful. And she dresses in a million different colors and actually like, like four different outfits put on top of each other, all in different colors, all in neon. And she's my dream now. I've never seen her, but I'm in love. Do me a favor. Go to Google and search WWE Asuka, A-S-U-K-A. And I will wait for this reaction. Oh, I think I have seen her in something before. Mm. She is absolutely gorgeous. And f- I, yeah. I love her hair so much. I love everything. She comes out with the mask and she bites the mask, but she takes it off. And she never hurries anywhere because you will be just as dead when she arrives. Uh. Yeah, so Ask is phenomenal. And recently I did a tweet, which she retweeted, and it then went ridiculous to the point where <sighs> I had to mute the notifications, which was oh that... Oh, my God. I forget what the term was, that's what I was looking for. The habit of animals who are deadly venomous to use bright colors to warn you that if you bite them or are bitten by them, you will die. Oh. Examples, the blue ringed octopus, the poison dart frog, Asuka. <laughs> <laughs> that's so perfect. Oh, congratulations on your, like, on getting touched by royalty. Yeah. So yes, Asuka's amazing. Also, do me a favor. If you're there, if you want to Google Shinsuke Nakamura and see why I love wrestling, S-H-I-N-S-U-K-E, and then Nakamura. Oh, what? Yeah. His facial expressions are priceless. He's amazing. And the way he wrestles and moves and does everything, I once referred to him as a swarm of spiders who decided to be a human and then decided that it hates you. 
Oh my god. So my in-laws, my Irish in-laws are super into wrestling. Oh, the UK wrestling scene is phenomenal, especially now. So they live in Bedford, but they're both from Dublin. Mm-hmm. And they stay up to watch the stuff and like will buy the access to all of the things that are like, you have to pay to access. And they follow all of that stuff. So I get sort of secondhand wrestling stuff. Oh, good. And I'm interested, but it's also, it's like getting into like a soap opera that's been going on for 50 years. <laughs> it's exactly what it's like. And it's so, you're like, how do I even get into it? What do I need to know? And I know it's really, you just enter at the point you enter and that's it. Exactly. It's like picking up an X-Men comic from a convenience store. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Where you start <laughs> is where you start. And there will always be something that you don't understand unless you go and do the research. I feel like that on Smash Fiction every single time is I am easily the one who is the least knowing of a thing. <laughs> but you feel the most about it. And that's the important part. I mean, is it? I feel like a lot of times whoever I've partnered with would disagree. But and also even like my husband will go, you know, I just feel like you don't want to win badly enough. And I'm like, I know I don't. I just want to talk about it. But I mean, I'll fight because that's the I just love playing in this space with all of you. <laughs> yeah, I just I just I'll fight about it, though, if it'll mean you'll let me hang out. What was it also on Twitter the other day whenever I was saying stuff and you were like, no, save it for the podcast. But I don't remember what it was. <laughs> don't remember either i will look it up but it's funny that we mentioned uk wrestling because in april progress which is the big kind of uk indie wrestling promotion will be coming and doing like a crossover show with pwa which is the local sydney promotion that i love dearly and so we get people like pete dunn the bruiser weight who do me a favor google pete dunn okay because i was like well d-u-n-n-e pete okay there we go man google's Oh my, he, yeah. I, I don't know what that aesthetic is or what that look is about. Well, rather than a cruiserweight, he's a bruiserweight in that he is not big, but he is, you know, dense. Like he's been built from like, you know, ingots of yeah. some terribly dense metal. He does have that fire plug build to him, but that hair yeah. and that like, he, oh, he shaves his chest. That's why he's a very shiny man. Yeah, it does happen a lot, but he'll do a thing. Like, for example, he'll put someone in an arm bar and rather than just holding them by their wrist and having their fist be high, he'll reach over, grab them by the fingers and bend their fingers back at the end. <laughs> and it's one of those things where William Regal, who is a longtime wrestler, will say that, you know, if you really want to get to an audience as a bad guy, do something that someone has experienced. Oh, that's such a smart thing. Yeah, it's like, oh, I will never know what it feels like to be suplexed through a table. If you stomp on my toes or or if you bend my fingers back, I know exactly how that feels. Or, oh, um, like, you know, it was a hardcore match where people were using weapons like chairs and like kendo sticks and stuff. And at one point there was a stapler and <gasps> the stapler on the webbing of someone's f- uh, between <gasps> their finger and thumb. And literally you could hear the visceral response from the audience. Just, uh. But whenever they do that, hmm. is I know that there's a lot of willingness to just go, yes, I am going to get injured, and that's kind of how it has to be. But whenever they do stuff that involves blood, do they still do it, or do they have to fake it somehow? It depends on the promotion, and it depends on the people. Because I would imagine there's also some, you know, contaminants issues just because blood is, you know, very especially much so. workplace OSHA stuff. I don't know. Well, because, frankly, it doesn't happen as much anymore, except for on indie shows. Like... Although, I think it was, was it, I may be crossing the streams between different references, but Jimmy Havoc, who is a current progress wrestler and is very much known for those crazy kind of deathmatch styles, uh, although he's also a very good regular wrestler as well, uh, would do a thing where he would go drag someone to the merch table, take an 8x10 photo, which are always glossy and have sharp edges, give someone a paper cut on their hands, then drag them to the bar that there always is at the indie show and pour tequila on it. Huh. And so again, that's pretty badass. It's one of those things where it's like, A, it's ridiculous, but B, it's incredibly relatable as anyone who's ever had like, you know, a cut on their hand and then chopped up lemons, for example. Ooh, yep. Yep. So we're coming off of professional wrestling because we weren't going to be talking about professional wrestling. But no, because I don't watch it, but I'm very I'm fascinated by it. Oh, I'm, yes. I'm delighted that it exists. Also, people who are watching professional wrestling, I got to see Kenny Omega the other day and I was no way cool. I may have actually like physically died in the video I took of it, the blurry video, because my hand was shaking. Oh my God. I actually screamed, that's my dad! And is audible on the video. <laughs> oh my God. You have like some sort of weird Bigfoot scenario with this shaky oh, camera. With this beautiful lightning fast weeaboo that is Kenny Omega. <laughs> oh, 
Congratulations. It sounds like you've had a blue ribbon day. He named his finishing move the one-winged angel. I want to name anything in my life that. And the other one's the V-Trigger, and he comes into a song called Devil Sky, which sounds like Final Fantasy boss music. So I've never, I've never played Final Fantasy. Ah, uh, see, again, you're feeling things, and you don't have the reference for them, but I, but I tell you, if you had it, it would be important. I can feel what it might be like, and it's pretty intense. <laughs> All right, so pulling this right back onto track. Now, Megan, Bob, you talked about how you had access to all kinds of books when you were a kid. Tell me about the mystery of Ron Inish. Yes, it was a movie that we got from the blockbuster. Mm. R.I.P. Blockbuster, I love you. It's set in Ireland, and it's kind of uh, has to do with... I don't want to use the word clearings, because that's a very kind of specifically a Scottish thing. Although, if anybody's well-versed in Irish history, I'm sure that there are some clearings there as well. I think anywhere where there's a forest, and then there's a bit where there isn't forest, it is technically Yes. Well, also, like, just clearing of people, just going like, no. Oh, right, okay. No, we shan't. We shan't have these people here. It takes place a little bit later than... It's far, far after kind of, like, highland clearing type stuff would have mm. been happening. But it's about selkies, and this girl finds out that i think it's her brother is taken by the seals and just like becomes like a little selkie kid there's a lot of this little girl wandering around alone in this haunting foggy environment and there are no adults around and there's a lot of like weird dreamy foggy sequences with haunting music and just a kid in a boat alone (laughs) And you're going, how is this happening? But it also deeply appealed to me because there were all of these things that I think, especially when you're a little kid, you kind of grapple with the world in a profoundly lonely way because you barely have words for a lot of things, especially all the big things. And so the idea that this little girl is just kind of allowed to grapple with this strange mystery where people are saying, well, look, this weird thing happened. We don't have a lot of information about it. We know what a selkie is blah blah and then she's just off you know in a boat that is moored to nothing wandering around (laughs) and then like the boat knocks and there's like a little seal head next to it and seal eyes are very they're creepy eyes but more than that they're eyes that don't reveal anything because they don't particularly have pupils Uh and so just this blankness i don't know i loved it and it was one of the first soundtracks that i ever bought that one and the soundtrack to to Wong Fu, thanks for everything, Julie Newmar, <laughs> which is the other most important childhood film of my life. I saw that movie at the Dolphin Theater, which was literally referred to as a theater near you on the sign so that you could say coming soon to a theater near you. <laughs> That's, I like that. Yeah, and it was $2 to get in and I would take the two liter Pepsi bottles that my dad would finish and get 30 cents each and get enough to go to the movies because apparently I grew up in the 1950s. But I went to see To Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar because I was a big Wesley Snipes fan and a big Patrick <laughs> Swayze fan. And it's a really I, different take I for both what, of them. 13-year-old Lucas had no fucking idea what was going on. Oh, you were 13 when you saw it. I was about, I think I was eight, uh, eight or nine. So did young Bob have a clue what was going on or was it just, this is great? I think I, you know, I kind of understood. I understood that like the main characters had, people were not cool with what they were doing. Mm-hmm. But because I was only that old, I had no idea why people had a problem with it. I was like, I'm confused. What, they're just doing a thing? What's the deal? But God, they were so, I don't know. What did you, tell me what, did you love it? I did love it, but I think I loved it in a way I couldn't quite articulate. I kind of, I'm with you. Yeah, I didn't have the vocabulary yet. It makes sense now. Yeah. Now that I sort of look back on it and I go, oh, that probably informed a lot of gender identity stuff for me about going, oh, well, you can have many things about you. It doesn't have to be A or B. It can be like an entire panoply of stuff. Yeah, totally. They were so, the outfits alone, so committed to this outrageous self-expression everything about me i love that so much because i i don't think i ever wanted to wear clothes as a child i only wanted to wear costumes i think as i parse it now just like really kind of looking at the feelings i was coming out is that seeing patrick swayze dressed as Miss Vita, and the thing is I know this is not what the movie was going for but the thing is i've seen now enough movies where you know a weirdo comes to a small town and revitalizes it Mm-hmm. This is a trope. This is a standard thing. And what I remember thinking is how nice Vita Patrick Swayze was to... Oh, God. Again, it's a long time since I've seen this movie. The woman that they meet. Yes! And it's just like, it's this nice little friendship that comes up. And I remember thinking even at the time, it's like, okay, well, this thing that is different 
about Ms. Vita is enough to allow them access to be nice to this person, to you know, bring this person out of their shell. And that in like, even my, you know, 13 year old brain was enough to be like, that's a nice thing. That's a nice thing that's happened. It's so, I think that was the first time I'd ever seen Patrick Swayze or Wesley Snipes in anything. Really? Yes. I mean, I was, well, I was eight. So it was like, didn't have a lot of, I had no idea who they were really. And I still, if I, somebody said, oh, name a Patrick Swayze film, I would go, okay, Dirty Dancing's the other one. And then there's this. And that's pretty much it. And then Wesley Snipes, I don't even think I've ever seen any other Wesley Snipes film. He did a big one. I had seen Passenger 57. Okay. No, but is that the one he's super famous for? I thought Wesley Snipes did another one that he's super famous for. More recently, he'd done Blade. There we go. That's yeah. the one people like. That was 97. So long before. Okay. The thing is, he was an action star before that. Passenger 57 was the big one where he was an air marshal and like had to kind of die hard on a, a plane. Oh, okay. Yeah. From which comes the classic line. He's talking to the bad guy on the phone. He says, do you ever play roulette? The guy goes, on occasion. And he goes, well, always bet on black. And he hangs up the phone. And it's like, one, that's badass. Two, that's really bad roulette advice because there is <laughs> many red tiles. And also there are the knot and double knot tiles. So even if you if you put equal bets on red and black, it could land on one of those and you're still screwed. Don't gamble, oh, kids. Oh, okay. I'm learning so many things today. Also, I just need to point this out because I was looking up the secret of Roninish. There were lots of pictures of a little girl with like brave style hair and a seal. But also there were two posters for that movie, one of which features a dark haired woman and the other which features the kid. Yes. But for some reason, among the Google image search, and I'm going to put this into the chat. Yes, please. I'm just going to throw this in there. I'm going to wait to see this reaction. What? That makes no... That is not from it. I don't know <laughs> Listeners. what that is... Under the tagline, The Secret of Ron Inish, bracket 1994, is a teaser image for the upcoming Pacific Rim 2 of a Jaeger with an energy gauntlet, and I'm pretty sure that the Selkies don't fight Jaegers. Again, I I have not seen this movie, but... Yeah, although I feel like I would be curious about that, Mm -hmm. but I, yeah, no, this is not... Now I'm wondering if John Sayles is, like, directing it? No, Guillermo del Toro. Why would John Sales be involved? <laughs> Maybe he's doing cinematography. I don't know. That's weird. Let me see. John, what has he been doing lately? Although there's also another thing in the Google image search that is a two-pack that says double the family fun with the secret of Ron Inish and Whale Rider, which yeah. I don't I don't know if Whale Rider is family fun. I mean, that's a, that's a sad movie. I mean, secret of Ron Inish, it's not super sad, but it's also not a film where you go, oh, okay, this is a film where everything's okay. <laughs> but I, I don't know. It is one, I feel like they're both like young girl and water-based animal films. And which is enough for an executive to go, yeah, cool. Yeah. Keep go for it. They're not not related, I guess. <laughs> Just in terms of the imagery and like the tone. All right. Yeah, I could kind of roll with that as a two pack. Seems a little odd, but <laughs> I do like Whale Rider. All right, Bob. So here's the thing. I'm looking at our okay. recording time and I think despite all of our tangents, we have time for one more topic. Okay. So I'm going to give you a choice. Do you want to talk about Xena Warrior Princess or do you want to talk about classic comedy? You know, I was thinking about Xenoria Princess, and I only remember how it made me feel. I don't remember much about it. So I think probably the comedy stuff I might have a better chance with. All right, so... Unless you want to get into shampoo bottles. <laughs> Pantene Pro-V. It's pH balanced, oh. which means it's not soap. <laughs> yeah, that's how you know. All right, so you brought up a lot in your initial email, you brought up a lot of classic comedy, but what really stuck out for me because of my parents' viewing habits is The Carol Burnett Show. Yes. And you listed up a whole bunch of stuff about it, but I was only familiar with The Carol Burnett Show because of reruns, because it would be on A&E or Bravo. They would replay a lot of old stuff and also a lot of behind-the-scenes documentaries about (sighs) here's how Tim Conway coming on the show changed things, which literally was just everyone was laughing all the time and corpsing, and they had to keep the camera rolling. Yeah. So what was your experience? So my parents are older, first of all. So my parents were born in 1950 and 1951. And they had me whenever they were like 35. So they were not interested in whatever comedy stuff was happening at the time. They were interested in the stuff that they had really loved. So they were way more into things like The Carol Burnett Show and things like Bob Hope and that kind of stuff. 
So that was much more part of my life. And they got a Reader's Digest compilation of funny <laughs> shit in the mail. And for some reason, we watched it all the time. And so it had clips from all these things. A lot of things that, you know, whenever we got this, you could tell, okay, Reader's Digest VHS hilarious compilation of stuff you can already by those very words know that there was no youtube from which to call <laughs> any of these things there was no netflix there was no hulu so there was no way to get any of this other stuff unless you just had access to the channel which we did watch a lot of nick at night to be fair but that it was really what you could get based which i remember a lot of people saying you know, they watch stuff after it had already come out and it was what you could get at the Blockbuster. This is what Reader's Digest thought was funny. <laughs> you know what? For Reader's Digest, they did not do a bad job. It was pretty all right. Laughter is the best medicine. God. Oh, <laughs> fuck me. I used to, whenever we would get the Reader's Digest, I would always go to all the comedy biz like every kid and just read all of those and go i don't know why this humor in uniform means anything but these are jokes <laughs> and i enjoy them yeah and you'd steal them and try them out on like aunties and uncles that come to the house <laughs> on a, yeah. yeah on an adult and they're like well that's odd it's like, how do you know what that is <laughs> yeah how do you know the difference between ranks i don't i would read the drama in real life sections of like oh. someone having to get a tracheotomy on the plane and to <laughs> this day i am still like you know, whenever I feel like, oh, my feet feeling uncomfortable in my shoes, I'm like, oh, what if my feet are swelling? And that causes a reaction. It'll cause my throat to close. And someone will have to use a <laughs> pen to do a tracheotomy on me. Uh, yeah, my dad always called it disease of the month. <laughs> it's it really, it's, oh, Reader's Digest. If you've never read a Reader's Digest, get one just to find out, just to have the experience of having touched one, having looked at it. I don't know who they're for, but they're very the thing they are. But yeah, Carol Burnett. So on this comedy combination, I don't think is I would see those two. I would always see the Time Life ones being advertised. And you're right. There was no way to get these things unless you were, you know, someone who would compulsively tape stuff off TV. And at which point, even then, you'd get whatever was on TV. You oh, would, You yeah. wouldn't get it. Like, because unless you're my mother, no one knows how to program a VCR. Oh, no. And my mom would only do it to, like, watch the football and knit. I mean, it was one of those situations where most people would only get a grab bag of things. So that what these <laughs> right. compilations would offer is a window into, oh, this is some stuff you've missed. And look, it's curated, so you'll get only the good stuff. It, it is absolutely that, and I kind of miss that that's... I. <laughs> it's a curated artisanal experience. Oh, boutique such. collection of... <laughs> Yeah, they had, so the Carol Burnett moment that I remember from that video is the same one I, I would hope that everybody would remember, is her as Scarlett O'Hara in the green dress that's made out of the curtains. <laughs> and her coming down that big grand staircase with the curtain rod across her shoulders. And her regal bearing as she says that, and then in that super deadpan way says... I saw it in the window and I just had to have it. It's like, <laughs> it's just life changing to see. So it great. is. It's so dumb. But the commitment with which it is delivered and the beautiful contrast of it. I don't know. I feel like that encapsulates almost everything about my sense of comedy is going like just whimsy combined with a complete commitment to buying into the whimsy you've created. I've Googled it now to remind myself and i forgot that there were tassels on that curtain and fringe, yes the tassels and it's just hanging over her head like spaghetti strands or a wig oh, oh my god this is genius <laughs> and i love the idea that they thought obviously you cannot throw that together as a bit you have to really structure because you have to talk to the costume department way in advance like that was not a thing they put together and be like all right look I know you could make a dress out of curtains and it would look like a dress, but how about it really looks like curtains, huh? Yeah. Let's talk about how you can make... I know. You know what? It looks too much like a dress. Go back. Add a lot of curtaininess to it. <laughs> You're at a 10. I need you at like a 4. <laughs> yeah. You did too well. Too well. Tone it down. <laughs> oh. Do you remember what that clip is called or what that scene is called? It went with the wind. That's what it is. Went with the wind. <laughs> oh. oh my god. Fucking Bob Mackie made that dress. Oh, what? Bob well, Did he Mackie. work on that show a lot? or He was apparently the costumer. I didn't know this. Jesus. Good lord. His crowning achievement. 
Apparently, they made it the first time, and he sent it back because it wasn't funny enough. Oh. So bless you, Bob Mackey. Bob, you're, oh, you're a beautiful man. You knew what the fuck was up. In the picture on his article, it's literally in a museum, that dress. Oh, as it should be. Where is this museum? I don't know. Let me see. We gotta go. Let's go and worship at the altar. Yeah. It's in the fucking Smithsonian in Washington. Bless your heart, Carol Burnett. That's where it should be. Oh, it is. God. I remember that so vividly. I actually have a big soft spot also for... Oh, no. How have I forgotten his name? That's so sad. No, I'm so sorry. I'll Harvey remember Corman. it in just a second. Old Tim dead Conway, man. Bob Hope, Jack Benny, no, Harvey Corman, Tim Jack Conway. Benny. There we go. Jack Benny. Because <laughs> I love that Jack Benny's thing is reacting that it's kind of what he does like his delivery is okay but it's all about looking at his face and seeing him move his arms in that very particular jack benny way (laughs) and it was a moment of seeing that and going okay comedy happens all over you it's not just what you say it is the way in which you hold yourself as you say it and as you experience other people saying things Speaking of how you experience stuff, I spotted on your list that you've got Gilda Radner in there, and I need to talk about Rosanna, Rosanna Dana, and how important that was to me, and how none of that translates right now. I tried to send someone a clip to say this is how good this skit is, and it just it just doesn't land now. I don't know what it is. Okay, I remember that one as well. I barely remember that one. And it's one of those ones where the genius of it is not just in the fact that she is being this awful woman who tells these rambling stories that get worse and worse and involve a celebrity in some form of bodily horror that is on their face (laughs) and ending with the, uh, what are you doing? You're trying to make me sick. But it's watching Jane Curtin next to her just like try and keep her shit together because... (laughs) Like as this becomes, this spirals out of control, and it's like it's always, you know. <laughs> I love the straight man. I love them so much. They never get enough love, and I feel like comedy's really lost sight of the fact that you have to have one. You need one so badly, but you need a good one. You can't have one whose like main thing is to be able. If they can only deadpan, it's like no, it's not good enough. You need a lot more than that. Yeah, it's like, what would the Marx Brothers be without, is it Margaret Dumont? Dupont? I always forget how to say it. Right. Oh, I think it is Margaret Dumont. Without her to just, like, take everything they say absolutely seriously. Or, oh. you know, you're Adam West in Batman 66, where everything yes. he says, every ridiculous fucking thing he says, is treated with the utmost sincerity and seriousness. And I love that so much. And there's very little comedy on now that I really love. There's actually very few TV shows that I wholeheartedly love now just because we're doing something different. And that's totally fine that we're doing something different. But like we've gotten into the kind of cringy comedy, which I know we borrowed from the BBC very early on in like the, I believe probably 1998, we started stealing all the cringy stuff. (laughs) True that. I still can't watch Peep Show. It hurts me too much. No, I can't watch Peep Show either. And I never watch the uk office the uk tolerance for a cringy thing is so high not just tolerance but for the ability to just sit on that cringy thing to not just have it happen and cut away but to just like sit in the pocket of that horrific moment where you have just said the bad thing and everyone's reacted to it but no one wants to address it directly but everyone knows what you just did like just you know what that pit of the stomach like oh god moment as you say that I feel I'm going to get into some history here. Sure, sure. That to me sounds like a very, UK folk, I'm so sorry. This sounds very fetishy <laughs> and like a very particular fetish, which actually the British were sort of, um, I don't want to say like flat out associated with, but it was very heavily implied by just kind of cultures adjacent to them that the british were super into bdsm but very much being on the receiving end because of their public school experiences so that they loved a good caning because that feeling of shame and horror was really did something for them and now i'm like oh man maybe the french were right (laughs) like y'all need therapy you take a scalpel to that and then you take out it's like what is that feeling of shame without the physical debasement? And it's like you distill that into, well, it's that creeping sense of embarrassment. And it's like that you're, oh, yeah. you're in the wrong, but no one will approach it. So you have to live in that moment. Yeah. You're just, you're alone in your own shame pit. 
And I guess that really does it for them. I don't know what does it. I don't know. As a Canadian, what do you think does it for America in terms of what's our fetishy experience in terms of television? Probably like hero worship, being the one to like fix everything. I would actually go in the opposite direction. I would say that at least in the American comedy that I've seen in the past, say, 30 years, I think the American viewpoint is to be adjacent to the buffoon. To be observing, but not have it be you. to be relatable nice but not actually have it be you so for example let's say on some terrible sitcom you know the bumbling dad makes a scene in a store because he's embarrassed Mm -hmm. it becomes this grandiose thing of shouting and grand declamations and and oh he falls on his butt at the end the american doesn't comedy it doesn't want to be that person but wants to be one of the people in line observing it to be good like that's funny because it's not me Oh, I feel like that's a really, really good point. There is a lot of that. I'm trying to think about the most recent ones, like your Brooklyn Nine-Nine, your community, your your Parks and Rec. See, I think that verges more into the absurdism angle. I think that's... Yeah, which we're kind of going through that right now, which I love. Tumblr jokes are my favorite jokes. And I can't describe it to people who are not on Tumblr because I'm like, I, it's Dadaist comedy. I'm sorry. That's all it is. It's something that's come out of, I think, just having so many improv performers in circulation at the moment, you know, after the explosion of Second City and the Groundlings and stuff like that, where you just get these people where it's like they can make something that is patently ridiculous, seem sensible and work, but also be funny. And I think that's where that comes from in the tradition. But you reminded me that there was recently a meme going around where after that which good place character are you thing came off where now it's what brooklyn 99 character are you or what slivers mm-hmm. of which character would you be and i immediately went into pondering this as i probably should have been working and i was thinking okay i think i'm like a split between jake and amy in that i have my kind of goofball side but i am also extremely organized and regimented and find security and safety in that and as i get older i'm recognizing that more and more as something something i'm good at and something where i feel comfortable and then my friend rosie fletcher swung in and just like completely rocked my world where she said lucas you love your friends so much that you made a podcast purely so you could talk to them and you constantly correct people on the pronunciation of your son's name and i just went oh jesus i've gone oh. full boil oh it's a hard realization. I have a lot of boil in me because I love, love food. Food is one of my Same. absolute... The, my fascination with food and food chemistry is just... I could have multiple podcasts where I just talk about the Maillard reaction. Boyle has a Chemex coffee maker on his desk, and I am looking oh. at one in my kitchen right now. And when I spotted that, and I'm like, oh, God, I have a pour over in my office. So I'm that guy, too. Oh, my God. I got one for my husband just the other day. It's great. I love it. Well, we got a second one. So we had, like, the regular kind of pour over that uses the paper. And we're like, why the fuck would we have this whenever we could get one that's just a filter one that mm-hmm. has the filter built in? And now we're like, ah, look at us yeah. saving but- the planet by not using that one piece of paper. Where is our Nobel Prize? there's that boil moment where he sees someone trying to toast a sandwich and he goes over and he's like no 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 stop what you're doing and then there's like a montage cut where he's like grilling the cheese separately and like using a blowtorch to crisp the edges of the sandwich and the guy takes a bite and boil goes huh and the guy kind of nods and i'm like oh i feel so seen I know. And then also that you know nobody's going to get it the way that you get it whenever you do a really particular food thing. And what's the worst thing about it is that he's not wrong in that moment. It does make an exceptional sandwich. It does. But it doesn't make it any less ridiculous. Yeah, like what you perceive as a vast improvement, somebody finds to be, you know, more or less indistinguishable. And you go, but but how? It's so good. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the struggles. I have a lot of boil in me, but I also have a lot of Terry. Not because I'm cool, just because I care a lot. And I'm like, oh, but I need to fix all of these things. So that way, none of you will go to jail. But also, I have a rich inner life where I'm an artist and I spent years in Japan. (laughs) Yeah, all of this eating nibs and yogurt and such things. Bob loves yogurt. You know what? I do now. As a kid, returning to our texture discussion of earlier, I thought it was disgusting and nearly vomited every time I ate it. And I didn't know why anyone would eat it. See, I got boysenberry yogurt with the fruit at the bottom. And I very much enjoyed taking the entire tub and stirring it up and sitting in front of Saturday morning cartoons with it. Oh, man. No, I was all about, I would much rather have had cereal any day. And God, cereal is so good. Ugh. 
I think that's a fine point to end on where I think everyone can agree. <laughs> no, that cereal's good. You're right. I think it is too. <laughs> All right, Megan Bob. So if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? They should go to Smash Fiction. Oh, no. I'm so sorry, Kit, Dan, everybody. They should follow Smash Fiction on Twitter. And then I am also on Twitter at Megan Bobness, where I sometimes say a thing and then other times consider saying a thing and then go, am I really adding to anything or am I just making noise because I feel like I need to make noise? And then sometimes I'll tweet about that feeling. I'm also on Tumblr, but you have to like know a secret wizard to find my Tumblr. But if you find that secret wizard, is it's pretty rad. It's mostly <laughs> pictures of snakes and stuff wearing a hat. <laughs> also, you can come to my class where I teach. Again, for privacy reasons, I probably can't tell you. Find that wizard. This has <laughs> not been a helpful description for anybody. I am so sorry. But you tried, and that's the important part. I mean, you know what? Yeah. Yeah, it is gold stars for me all right bob thanks so much for coming on the show thank you Thank you very much to Megan Bob for her time and for teaching me in her class or at least assigning me as homework. I kind of downplayed it in the episode, but I was really like proud and impressed and a little bit shy about the fact that people are listening to this and learning things. Hi, everyone. Please pay attention because this will be on the test at the end of the year. That is not true. I have no control over curriculum. I'm sorry. When I asked Megan Bob for her signature cocktail, she said this. For drinks, the best way I can describe my preferences for alcohol is that I am a lightweight, so I only ever order a single drink. Because I'm only ordering a single cocktail, I get whatever the wildest, most uncompromising thing on the menu is. Usually this involves Campari, Chartreuse, a crazy kind of gin, and muddling some sort of special twigs with a small batch mystery liquor made by a remote enclave of talking bears. That said, if I could only drink one cocktail for the rest of my life, it would probably be a well-balanced Clover Club. It's got a mouthfeel and flavor that seems like it must have been made by magical flower nymphs in a secret all-night club deep in the woods. And while I don't know from flower nymphs, I can certainly help with wild and uncompromising. And with some of the flavors you've mentioned, I knew right where to go. That's right, we're taking a detour down the Puntimez Alley. Puntimez is a sort of vermouth. It's very bitter. It's like proper fucking bitter. So I use it sparingly, but it definitely turns the drink around its little finger. So I present... The Miss Vita. In a shaker full of ice, combine two ounces of botanical gin, half an ounce of Campari, half an ounce of Puntimez, half an ounce of sweet vermouth, and a dash of orange bitters. Shake vigorously and strain into a pre-chilled martini glass. Garnish with a twist of lemon peel that you've rubbed along the rim of the glass a little bit. Drinks, once they are poured, have a life of their own. Enjoy! Meth of You is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday evening, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash logified and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or, guess what? You, I'm going to tell you this, guys. You can pledge as much as you want. They don't tell you that. Patrons get bonus cocktails, cursive tweets, 
and I would really just appreciate it a whole bunch. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can go to Apple Podcasts in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating or write a review. It helps people find the show. If I see a review that I'll like, I'll read it out. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. Go to bit.ly slash themathofyou, with capitals at the beginning of each word, to find a Spotify playlist with every song I've ever used, going all the way back to episode one. That's like 11 plus hours of music, including this one. It's I Gotta Be Me by Carol Burnett. Because I tell you what, she's a very funny lady, but also she can fucking sing. She did albums with Julie Andrews, like a whole bunch. I update the playlist as soon as the episode goes live, so make sure to subscribe and get the new music in your ears. Next week, it's the return of Art Lee Vasquez. We're going to talk about some cartoons. Join me, won't you? I want to do another one where I just talk to you about all your stuff. I just want to know a bunch of Lucas stuff. I would be totally okay with that. I know you already did one where you got interviewed, but I just have like a billion Lucas questions. <laughs> oh, that was episode 15. I am due for another one. Okay. I just want to like just ask all the Lucas questions. You can explain all the things that I don't know about. <laughs> you just tell me the plot of Back to the Future. <laughs> oh, I could. And then I'll understand what that is. Oh, Bob. I know the list of things I I still haven't. Okay, so I've never seen an Indiana Jones film. Which do I need to see them in any order? Does it matter? Actually, no. They are extremely episodic. You can just do whatever. Okay. Is there one that's the best one? Either the first one or the third one with Sean Connery in it. So either Raiders of the Lost Ark or The Last Crusade. I remember one part of the third one, which is the part whenever one of them is bleeding and they pour some of the wine on it and the wound heals. Oh, yes. It's right at the end. So you have been spoiled. A part of the okay, <laughs> who gets shot? That would be Sean Connery, so Henry Jones Sr. Okay, because I remember it being a very hairy tummy and going like, that's a Sean weird. Connery he has looks a very like hairy a small tummy. bear. And as a child, finding that very fascinating. <laughs> I just remember seeing the effect reminding me of hydrogen peroxide and thinking, did they just pour peroxide on it and it cleaned it off? Oh, maybe. Yeah, we had very different interests. You were interested in, like, the chemical reaction. I was interested in the fact that, like, Sean Connery's a furry person. <laughs> Like, oh, that's odd. Maybe it's to keep him warm because he's old. Who knows? 